Mrs. Sivan's words about teaching continued to haunt me. We have huge responsibility to future of passing the spirit to next generations. Always remember only what you give is yours. Several of her students ran music schools of their own, regularly bringing their students to her for consultations, so that she oversaw an army of Adelaide's young pianists. Not all students will be professional pianists, she conceded, but equally important to educate audiences. In some ways, teaching is highest calling because must be able to do first, but then translate into words. And sometimes, what we try to explain is so. What is this word? So elusive, like tiny fish in your palm. You catch, and then boom, it jump out of your hand. I took on a handful of private piano students and began teaching at a piano school. Initially, I felt liberated in the teacher's chair. At one remove from the piano stool, away from the distractions of playing, I was forced to listen, and I experienced the clarity of the conductor. But somehow, as I tried to communicate this clarity to my students, that tiny fish flicked in my hand and then disappeared. I thought you told me not to sit. A ten-year-old girl protested. Yes, but that doesn't mean you should ignore punctuation. She looked at me dubiously. Didn't you say Bach never stops? Yes, I faltered. But we should still observe phrasing. Was this the way I would serve Mrs. Sivan's legacy, scrambling her message from one telling to the next, as in a childhood game of Chinese whispers? How did you teach me? I asked her one day in desperation. I had been there, of course, but aspects of the process seemed inexplicable, almost mystical. It was one thing to speak about style and meaning and logic, to discuss the what and the why, but how did you convey the how? How did you transfer a physical knowledge from your hands to the hands of another? Sometimes I don't know myself," she smiled. "But important always to touch hands, to emancipate them. At the same time, be careful not to demonstrate too much. Children very good at copy. Many teachers teach by do it my way, teaching only for today. Very good, but then student handicap for tomorrow. You must prepare students for life. I attempted to remake myself in her image, extending my one-hour lessons indefinitely, packing them with lecture and anecdote, and passing on her expressions like the most ardent of disciples." My students' eyes slid to the clock and back again. They dabbed at their faces, removing the enthusiastic flex of my saliva. When I released them out the front door, they gasped gratefully at the air, as if reborn. Very important to know measure, she told me. Too much, and immediately they intimidated. Too little, and no point. Psychology very important. Always remember individual human being and respect a person sitting next to you. You must be light in students' life. Compared to teaching, performing seemed less complicated. I only had to tell one person what to do, and increasingly she obeyed. I accepted every invitation that came my way, performing for probus societies and music clubs, at choir concerts and fundraisers, in historical houses, and in town halls. Despite my busy concert schedule, I had still not performed a piano concerto. When you play concerto with best orchestra, best conductor is greatest joy," Mrs. Sivan said. "Full love affair. It gives you wings, full freedom. Believe me, you will fly." I hoped I would. I was nearly eighteen and had never played a concerto with a professional orchestra. I felt anxious about leaving my first time too late. Any large group of people was intimidating, but an orchestra was even worse. A large group of professional musicians. Each nursing a private opinion of your playing, 
Imagine having a memory lapse in front of an orchestra. Imagine the conductor calling a halt to proceedings, that loaded silence, the loud beating of your heart as the audience looked on, aghast. I knew I had to find a willing orchestra and confront my fears, but this was not easy, and Mrs. Sivan advised me to avoid the amateur. Playing with good orchestra is greatest joy, but playing with bad orchestra, absolute waste of time. Even worse, can kill your sounds. I decided to enter the ABC Young Performers Awards, a national competition in which finalists performed with one of the major ABC orchestras. The first two rounds comprised auditions before a selection panel, and I spent the summer holidays preparing my program. In February, my father dropped me at the ABC building in Collinswood. After signing in at security, I followed its beige corridors to a small foyer outside Studio 520, where I waited outside the spiral staircase, reapplying my lipstick until it tasted like mud. A silver-haired adjudicator came to the door. The jury is ready for you. He beckoned me into the studio and introduced me to his colleagues. What would you like to play first? The Chopin Nocturne, I said. I registered a supercilious eyebrow and sat down at the piano, making myself quiet to get a sense of the space. An adjudicator cleared his throat. When you're ready. I had not played this particular Steinway before, but when I embraced the opening, it reached back to me like an old friend, and I felt an immediate relief. As I introduced the right-hand melody, I listened to what the sounds told me after, sending them out to the walls and bringing them back in. Until I felt I was mapping the studio through sonar, feeling it in my fingers like a type of braille. This is going well. Banish that thought. But it is. Does that mean a memory lapse is overdue? I ignored the voices in my head and concentrated on Chopin, trailing these sounds across the kinks in the ceiling and over the softening, undefended faces of the adjudicators, until the final chord, which hung in the air for a moment and then evaporated. Leaving a shimmer in the room. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Late that afternoon came a thrilling phone call from the ABC. The judges were very impressed. The second round of auditions called for the performance of a complete concerto, accompanied by a second piano playing the orchestra part. I had nominated Rachmaninoff's second concerto, which he composed after being treated with hypnosis. His therapist, Dr. Dahl, had predicted that he would emerge from depression and write a great work. It was my favourite concerto, and I had written it down on the application form with a flourish, flattered that such a piece might belong to me. But it had seemed like tempting fate to begin preparing it until I was definitely through to the second round. Now. As I divided its ninety-one pages into the four weeks remaining before the audition, I started to panic. Do you think I should pull out? I asked Mrs. Sivan at my next lesson. Impossible. Then they never ask you back. We work hard and recommend an also great pianist. He makes easy. You will very like. She opened the thick score to the first movement. Rachmaninoff, so generous, so cultivated and self-sustained, and always bells. Bells can be many: church bells, sleigh bells, but these are bells of life. Altogether, Rachmaninoff, extremely positive, extremely healthy composer. This is music of health and balance, very giving, very healing. We worked on the great gongs of the opening, listening to the changes in overtones between each chord, their growing resonance before the explosive entrance of the first theme. 
Exactly. This is swimming in sounds and life continuing. Remember, freedom of hearing is based on only one thing, full understanding of what you're doing, and only then you're free to create anything you like. At home, I lost that freedom of hearing. I became fixated on memory, on swatting those 91 pages of music, ignoring the sounds in my obsession with the notes. At night, as I fell asleep, I saw the imprints of the notes on the inside of my eyelids. In the morning, when I awoke, I felt the third movement in the muscles of my jaw, where I had been grinding my teeth. Not! This I don't like. Your sounds in cages must be free like birds. Ah, exactly! And what about rhythm? You take strict rhythm in pushing, in dictating, in metronomic. Time must be precise, of course, because you must play with orchestra, but at the same time very stretching, very giving. What is the difference between solo part and orchestral part? The individual versus the mass? Of course! Large group of people never that flexible. This section like, how do you say, uh, like little small things glittering. Like glitter? Exactly! I think I understand. But understand itself not enough, must be able to do first and then repeat and repeat and repeat until 200% secure. I practice this glittering passage work at home, listening to the connection between every sound, and then repeated the same two lines again and again and again, until I was on an endless merry-go-round of glitter and the world contracted around me and my peripheral vision disappeared. After one hour, or was it two, I heard a squirmy voice in the room addressing me urgently. I stopped playing and looked around, readjusting my eyes to the light. Silence. When I returned to that passage, the voice started up again, even more frantically. Yakety yakety yak. It had nothing to do with the concerto, but came from somewhere between the notes, a gate crasher to Rachmaninoff. I could not quite gauge its meaning, only its breathless, busybody intonation. Unnerved, I took a tea break and watched the minute hand of the clock repel me closer to my moment of reckoning. The following morning, I went to my first rehearsal with my accompanist, Inna. She was also a student of Mrs. Sivan's, recently arrived from Russia, and I felt safe with her, and my gatecrasher left us alone. We began the first movement, and I tasted the thrill of concerto playing. Then I took a wrong turn in the development and was dumped into a memory lapse. Once more, yes, she said, blinking eagerly. This time I forgot about memory and submitted to the music's gorgeous abandon. I grabbed those giant fistfuls of notes and tossed them to Inna. She lobbed them back to me, their chromaticism glistening in the air like coins. After the abrupt ending, we turned to each other and grinned. We'll be beautiful, she said. Based on this rehearsal, there was a 50% chance that she was right. The following afternoon, I arrived at Studio 520 with Inna and her page-turner. I sat at the piano and turned to Inna, who winked at me. There had not been a South Australian keyboard finalist for several years. The hopes of everyone in the state were riding on me, even if they didn't realise it. As I rang those opening gongs, I forgot about life and sounds, and tried instead to calculate my security percentage, as though I were being judged on a feat of memory alone. Had it crept upward since my first rehearsal? To 60% perhaps, or even 70 you need to be inside brackets, of course, but absolutely emancipated. Inna entered with the orchestral theme, and I let its assurance guide me, forgetting about percentages, concentrating only on the music. Even though brackets exist, nobody pays attention. Things were going well until I arrived at the squirmy passage that had once talked to me, where I heard an outraged rustle of papers from the jury. There was a loud, emphatic whisper, Preposterous! 
I ignored it and continued my earnest song. But now another adjudicator joined in the whispering, and then another. They repeated the same word to each other, over and over, preposterous, preposterous, until it became a soundtrack of muttering throughout the performance, subject to the music's accelerandos and ritardandos, concentrated on those plosive P's which match the consonant frontal edge of the piano sounds, that attack of hammer-hitting string. Even as I aimed to create a cantabile sound, camouflaging that edge into the vowels of song, this muttering of preposterous bound me to the notes, until I too seemed to be playing the word preposterous, performing my own indictment. Afterwards, there were no supportive nods or thank yous, and I had to open the door myself as we left. They were so rude, I gasped in the foyer. Uh, what do you mean by this? Ina asked. Didn't you hear they kept on saying preposterous? I do not understand. What is this word? Inna's page-turner looked at me. I could see them, and nobody spoke through the entire performance. I drove home, confused. Was it possible that, by trying to cram-learn this concerto, I had reversed its healing powers? That this glorious work, which marked Rachmaninoff's return to health, had become the agent of my undoing? When I arrived, my parents greeted me with expectant smiles. It was a disaster. Is this a case of hyperbolitis? My mother asked on her way out to bridge. My father ordered us takeaway Thai that night, which was my favourite, and borrowed a video Zorba the Greek. I knew he was trying to make me feel better, but the sticky rice had no taste, and I could spare no sympathy for the widow in the film. Stop being self-indulgent, Pi, he said. I considered running to my bedroom and slamming the door. Technically, I was still a teenager. But I was too exhausted for extreme acts. Instead, I stared catatonically at the black and white figures flickering on the screen. Despite glimpses of success, failure seemed to be my default setting, my true home. I knew I would never play with an orchestra. I was not only preposterous, but insane.' 